Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Partly cloudy skies. Welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, a community demands answers after the police shooting death of 27-year-old Rashard Brooks. If you don't live in this community, because they have cops that stay in this community that did not respond to that call, why is that? They shouldn't have been here. We'll also hear from Atlanta City Council member Joyce Shepard and several state lawmakers. Meanwhile, Georgia's 2020 legislative session resumes today. The session was placed on hold due to the pandemic. Lawmakers and staff will be required to follow social distancing and sanitation guidelines as they return to the Gold Dome. Officials say everyone will have their temperature scanned while walking into the Capitol. House members and staff will be required to wear masks. Senators are also strongly encouraged to do the same. Now, WAB News will have a lot more later on All Things Considered, hosted today by Emil Moffitt. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The body camera footage is more than an hour. It shows the moment Officer Devin Bronson arrived at the Wendy's location on University Avenue in southwest Atlanta. A 911 call had come in of a man asleep in a car in the drive-thru. It was 27-year-old Richard Brooks. Bronson wakes Brooks and instructs him to pull out of the drive-thru and into one of the parking lot spaces. Soon after, another officer, Garrett Rolfe, arrives. Hey, Mr. Brooks. Hey. Mr. Brooks. How you doing? Hey, I'm Officer Rolfe of the Atlanta Police Department. How you doing? I'm doing just fine. All right, so uh, tell me, I wasn't here, so can you tell me what uh, what happened before we got here? Uh, Nothing happened. I just got here and was getting something to eat. Where were you coming from? Uh, Well, my friend dropped me off here. And she... She brought me here to get something to eat. And After nearly 28 minutes of a cordial interaction, a sobriety test, the officers try to arrest Brooks. An altercation follows. Brooks gets a hold of one of the tasers and starts to run. During the short chase, Brooks appears to turn back and point the taser at the officers. Officer Roth fires his weapon and Brooks is killed. Later, people start to arrive at the Wendy's as word spreads of the police-involved killing. Saturday. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms holds a press conference. What has become abundantly clear over the last couple of weeks in Atlanta is that while we have a police force full of men and women who work alongside our communities with honor, respect, and dignity, there has been a disconnect with what our expectations are and should be as it relates to interactions with our officers and the communities in which they are entrusted to protect. Chief Erica Shields has been a solid member of APD for over two decades and has a deep and abiding love for the people of Atlanta. And because of her desire 
that Atlanta be a model of what meaningful reform should look like across this country, Chief Shields has offered to immediately step aside as police chief so that the city may move forward with urgency in rebuilding the trust so desperately needed throughout our communities. Saturday night, outrage over Brooks' killing results in protests. This includes a blocked interstate, and a large crowd is gathering at the Wendy's. The Wendy's is set on fire. As the blaze grows, two nearby gas stations are broken into. Sunday. George Shepard, Atlanta City Council, District 12. How long have you been out here? For two days. Two days. I was out here yesterday, got here this morning at 10. I'm still out here. And so, interacting with my people in my community, listening, talking, dialoguing, trying to make people understand there are certain, there's different factions of people out here. So there are some folks who live immediately in the community who know me and we're talking about what we can do. Then you got other folks out here who are just, they're from a whole different community. Some of them, I just talk to folks not even in the city, they're just here and they're bringing different agendas. And so one of the things I'm having to do is calm folks down because what we don't want to see happen is we burnt down Wendy's last night. We burnt down Wendy's, Rashad Brooks, who was killed. Let's talk about that before we even talk about Wendy's. As a council member, I would tell you that I am highly dissatisfied and it was unjust in terms of him being killed. So I will say that on record everywhere I go. I don't care what people think. I don't care about who think what. That was unjust in terms of his killing. They could have did this a different way, which is what we're talking about in terms of we need to completely revamp policing across the country and in particular in the city of Atlanta. I've been involved with doing that. We have a 45-day task force that I'm on with the mayor that's going to actually talk about what we do to revamp this. So that's number one. Number two, being out here at Wendy's, by burning this down, we just unemployed black folks who work at Wendy's. Carver High School is right up the street. Kids from Carver High School working at Wendy's. So, and I was told by people who live in the community that the people who burned this down were not us. I was told that they were white people. They didn't even understand what was. This is what I was told by folks in the community. They have been in my face this morning talking about that. They're hurt and, and over what's happening. What we did this morning to begin with, we did a massive cleanup. We cleaned up the street, trash was everywhere. We cleaned up from here all the way to the expressway and down University to make sure that we sent a message to folks that we, are, we want a clean community. So again, I'm out here listening, talking, interacting, and when I finish that, next week when I get back to the city council, we're going to begin to actually strategize in terms of what are the next steps. This is not me just talking as a council member, but what other things we can do, not only on the city level, this is a national movement. This is something that what's happening in terms of the black community is systemic racism that has been around for years, and, and the results of that is what we have today. Would you, are you saying also that it's been systemic throughout the Atlanta Police Department for years, even before Mayor Bottoms' term? Well, I would tell you policing across this country in terms of the history of policing from the beginning was never, I mean, there's a history even in terms of the black police officers who actually, when they had police here in the city, it was all white, black police department. When they finally, back in the 50s, 60s, brought in black police officers, they wouldn't even let them interact 
with the white police officers. They put them at Butler Street wide. That, that's a whole book on policing in the city. And, but that's not, that's typical across the country. What do you make of Police Chief Erica Shields stepping aside? It, it, I talked to the mayor about that yesterday. And in this part, point in terms of leadership, we need strong leadership. I respect Chief Shields and what she does, but we cannot continue to have what we have with our police officers in the city of Atlanta doing what they're doing, and that's no justification for it. So you're saying a lack of leadership under Chief Shields? We need leadership. We need a change. We need stronger leadership. We need somebody to send a message, if it's internal to the police department, to whoever. But we need a change in terms of making sure that we really do real policing and revamping the police department. You all will come back. And let me just say, when we had Mayor Bottom had that conversation with her, from what I've heard, is that as a part of this process, we were, she agreed that she would step down. You think that was the right decision? That was the right decision. Yes. Thank you. Park Cannon, State Representative, House District 58. You all came out here, the Atlanta and Fulton County delegation to the side of the Wendy's. What was the message you wanted to get across to the crowd? The message we wanted to send is that these are our streets, that we understand that legislative attempts in the past have not been supported by some of our colleagues at the state capitol. And because of Rayshard Brooks' killing last night here on site at Wendy's, we have an urgency to get that legislation passed this week when we go back to the Capitol. How likely is that, given that you all have to pass a budget, there's still some other legislation that people want you to address, hate crimes, all of that nature. Where will a measure like this, where will it fit in, and, and can you all get it done in such a short period? Today I'm here to talk about House Bill 636, which would create an accountability registry for police-involved situations of excessive use of force. And this is a piece of legislation we've been working on for one year, so we know that we have some more specificities and some edits and revisions to make, but we know that the first step is to get a hearing in the Public Safety Committee this week, so we are pushing for that. Secondly, we are here to talk about House Bill 426, which is the hate crime legislation and would allow for us to address some of the ways in which hate crimes happen in Georgia. People are tired, They've, they're exhausted, they told you this today, they let it be known, they've been hearing so much of the same narrative and rhetoric for decades. What can you say to them that'll be different this time, or at least that you want them to know that? Right now, during COVID-19, we've been reminding folks, be patient or be a patient. And with this situation of criminal injustice, lack of police accountability, and hate-filled states, we also want people to know that if they are not a part of the conversations going on, then we're not going to be able to get it moving. So we want to increase public uh, interactions with elected officials at the state capitol over the next week, and we truly believe that that will be the driving force to make it pass. Counties will tell you don't interfere. Local municipalities will tell you don't interfere in what we're doing. But is it time now for the Georgia General Assembly to step up and try to pass some measures? What we know is that whether or not the locals 
want to do what the state is trying to do, sometimes we have to shake that conversation up. And what we are seeing right now in the Atlanta uprisings are monolithic leadership decisions. Whereas we really need to come together and have collective brainstorms on how to get justice for Atlanta and Fulton County. I'm going to bring in now a veteran of the Georgia General Assembly. We've had many conversations before, Senator Nan Orrock. Senator, thank you for taking the time. Great Good. to see you down here, Rose, uh, on the front lines covering this really critically important uh, and horrendously sad development that the Atlanta police have shot down another black man. What do you make of all this? What needs to happen now? The time is now to do comprehensive rethinking of policing in Atlanta and in America. Uh, I just came from the state capitol and they're unloading the corrections officers out of the buses from all over the state to come up here and be a strike force. Uh, the, uh, the res to respond to these protests that are coming from the very heart and soul of the black community about what people's lived experience is. There's no one that doesn't know somebody who's lost a child either to the prison system or to a bullet. And the time for change, the time for change is long since past. I'm hearing now people that didn't seem to take this seriously now moving to a place of accepting, oh, this narrative about black people being pushed back and held down for centuries there's actually something to it. There are people that are moving to, and we've talked to people, and people have thought, people have died, people have worked to get this across. There is an openness now that I haven't seen before of, oh my God, this stuff is real. It's breaking through that narrative that blame black people for what happens to them. That's been the narrative. And no, it's not black people that are in the wrong. It's this racist, white supremacist system that has been methodically and systematically pushing black people down. Senator, as lawmakers, as state lawmakers, what can you all do? Can you try to push measures through? You have such a short time. Y'all got to pass a budget first. Well, we are, of course, demanding that the hate crimes bill be passed. Now, that bill has sat in the Senate untouched since it passed the House. House members fought very hard and got a bipartisan vote and passed a hate crimes bill. We're one of four states in the country that doesn't have it. That needs to be passed, no question. But we have to do comprehensive reform of policing. Uh, do you know that some of our professional licenses in uh, providing services to the public require more time than training to be a policeman? or a policewoman in this state. And, 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 and what's the number now for how many uh, police shootings have been investigated by the GBPI this year? More than 40. The numbers are there. It's indisputable. We feel that the Republican leadership has no choice but to pass the hate crimes bill. But further than that, we're pushing to take the citizens' arrest. That was, that was, that was developed uh, in, in, in ancient times. It's a 19th century law, citizens' arrest. 
take that off the books. That that's what was used to to justify killing uh, Ahmad Arbery in Brunswick. Uh, take stand your ground off the books. That was a new iteration that has been brought to state law books all across the country to allow people to kill with impunity. Uh, that's what George Zimmerman uh, used in his defense uh, to kill Trayvon Martin. So we have a package of bills for justice and we're going to push and promote those in, in every way that we can. We're also working on the budget to make, for example, are you going to fund um, black women's health or are you going to continue to stay at the bottom of the American ladder on black women dying in childbirth? Can you can you get by, bipartisan support on all of these yeah, well, measures? We're, we're going to get by, I think we're going to get six months coverage uh, after the baby's birth for mothers uh, th that are covered by Medicaid. I think we're going to, I mean we're, we're pushing for that in the budget. We're step by step pushing for that. But we're, can you get bipartisan support on all these measures as it deals with law enforcement? Well, that is the challenge. That is the challenge. And I, I recall when we passed a hate crimes bill before in the House, came from the Senate to the House, we had a white Republican get up and speak out and said that he's no longer going to participate in discriminatory behavior. He's not going to do it. And he led the Republicans to vote for that hate crimes bill. It was not a strong enough bill. But, but those things happen. People have awakenings and epiphanies. Uh, so I, I'm not giving up on the legislative process by any means. And, and we're adding new people coming to the legislature. And there are people that are leaving and won't be there. So it's a, it's a new day dawning. And the protest that's come from the heart of the black community with allies from the white community, the Latino community, the Asian community, there's a, there's a mighty storm rising in this state and across this country, and we're going to get change. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Rose. I see, I'm fr originally from Miami, Florida, but I just moved here two and a half years ago. You live in this community? I don't, but I have friends that live here, and my homeboy, he stays right there. It could have been him because he comes to this Wendy's all the time. You're part of the community. What do okay. you want? First and foremost, they need to get rid of quotas because quotas is what have these police out here acting a fool. Number two, if you don't live in this community, because they have cops that stay in this community that did not respond to that call. Why is that? Those two white cops should have been in Buckhead. They shouldn't have been here because they don't know the people in this community. And they see a, a black man, they de automatically demonize him. And that is the problem. That man has three children that now have to wake up to no father. That is not okay. And they continue doing that. And they, they continue to put our children through trauma. And it's a generational curse. They have to break it, period. And the fact that we're in the blackest city in America and we still have to go through this, it tells you something is wrong. It tells you something is wrong. What accountability does Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms have in all of this? She has, she, those, the blood is on her hands because she basically gave the green light. Keisha, and that's and th did you notice that la a couple weeks ago, Keisha had a lot to say about what we were doing, but then all of a sudden when this happened, the, t the tune of the drum changed because she knows she was wrong for all the she was talking two weeks ago. Because people are upset because she th she's saying APD is the greatest police department, and two weeks later they go and kill somebody? Come on now. Why did she not come in here and be like, okay, these are the changes y'all need to make. Y'all need to learn how to de-escalate situations. And even in this case, if the man is drunk and, sl and sleeping, tell him to pull into the parking lot and go to sleep. He said he will walk to his sister's house and they continue to escalate the situation. That's the problem. 
who's managing and overseeing the police unions who fight hard to not only allow them to keep their jobs, but then keep their pensions? Who is overseeing that? We, we can go back to policing our own communities, but when we do that, they, they swamp down because, like she said, they have quotas to fill that make it very dangerous. If I know I'm going to get a bonus or something, if I go out here and arrest more people, this was uncalled for. I would think the heavy questions that y'all need to be asking are, and I hope that they surface, is when, if he failed the field sobriety test, was he not patted down at that time to know that he didn't have a weapon? So if the only weapon that you feared was the taser that you were trying to use on him, is what made you feel threatened? Let's ask the real questions. Let's ask the real questions to say what really made you feel. Was it just that you drove into a black neighborhood to make a black arrest? These are the questions that we overlook and they get lost in all of our emotions. I'm convinced that we grieve deeper because we've been seeing it televised since slavery. So why don't we ask the real question, and why isn't Keisha Lance Bottoms down here? If you fear the community that you are part of, that you brag about, that you say you, that, that you are marrying for, come down here so you could be seen. That's what the people need to see. The religious leaders, Creflo them, they're not down here. T.I. them want to tell us to shop black or don't shop one day, but yet they still building up Versace them. This is what needs to happen. Otherwise, we're going to see uh, people coming together and it's going to flip the script and you're going to hurt so bad that then you are going to start killing other people because you're going to take it out on innocent people. And then when it looks like white people are being slaughtered in the streets, that's when something is going to change. And we don't want it to get to that. What is your message to Mayor Bottoms? Be more visible. That's the only thing that's going to make these people even go decide to vote because they feel like every time somebody gets in there, they hear during election time knocking on doors. After that, they don't see them anymore. Come out here if you have to have the National Guard stand guard with you. Just let, Park came down here by herself. Park Kennedy, she didn't have no security. Come out here. But by the time Park get here, they so frustrated, they can't even hear that she's really fighting for the real cause for everybody out here. I would challenge Keisha to come sit in these communities. Jeff Delp, a resident and uh, operator of Carver Neighborhood Market. You've been in a neighborhood for more than two decades. Two decades, sure. You ever seen anything like this? Absolutely not. This is this is this is new. Not have not seen this before. What do you make of this? Um, uh, lots of lots of things. Uh, one, I feel like this is something that is this is an Atlanta story, right? That happened to, that Friday night in our neighborhood, uh, and we're glad everyone's here. Uh, but this isn't the story of our neighborhood. Uh, the story of our neighborhood certainly is police brutality. I mean, it's this has been people have been saying this forever. Uh, uh, we make it a point as you know, I run a store. To, this is why we don't call the cops, right? If someone shoplifts in our store. This is why we don't involve the police. We, we involve other people in the neighborhood to, to take care of these issues because cops just can't be trusted to do this stuff. So you say it's easier if the community kind of polices itself, if it's, if it's not a major offense or, or alleged offense. Yes, I think sleeping in a car is not a major offense, nor is shoplifting. You know, obviously, there's things that involve police, but these minor things need to be solved another way. You don't need someone with a gun coming in and waking someone up in their, in their car. You just don't. So... What's the solution through your viewpoint, the police side of this, the law enforcement side of this, the community side of this? Oh man, that's that's obviously a big big question. Um, on the police side, they ha they have to be open to reforming, right? It's, just, it's not working. We have to we have to work together with the police to figure out something different. It's just not working. We got to blow it up and start anew. 
Uh, on the community side, I think we got to keep speaking. We got to keep walking. We got to keep demanding something better. We, we've put up with this for, for too long. And it, one thing that we are seeing is when we speak, people listen. And the louder we speak, uh, the faster we get what we want. What do you make of Chief Shields resigning her post? I mean, I think she's trying to be a good leader. I think she was a good leader. Um, uh, I think she moved out um, because she was hoping that it, that could help with reform. Uh, I know she was respected. I know, I'm sure the people who didn't like her as well, but uh, I think she was trying to be a good leader in, in it. Does Mayor Bottoms, is there any accountability on her part? Um, I, I mean... I think we all, to some degree, we all have complicity in this, right? I think no one, we're all part of the system, and uh, I, I think to single her out would be unfair. Um, certainly, she could do more. Um, I think there's, there's thing, yeah. I, I wouldn't single her out specifically. Um, I think she's tried. She could do better. There's, there's a lot more she can do. Your store is well respected in this neighborhood. What can you do personally then? Um, I mean, we keep fighting. We, we need to add more jobs. We need to pay people more. We got to keep, you know, we got to keep fighting this fight um, as, as much as we as much as we can. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all we can always do more, and, and that's the the hard part is where do you where do you put your energy in the best place? Um, and we'll we'll keep asking ourselves that question. We'll keep asking our neighbors that question. Sometimes what we think we could do more, our neighbors don't have that same opinion. So most of our neighbors were close by, but weren't here last night. And so we're going to be walking the neighborhood just so we can all connect and listen and see how everyone's feeling. Uh, so, just, yeah, just continue to listen and, and, and when appropriate, act. Voices from those on site at the Wendy's location Sunday afternoon, speaking with Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Protests are expected to continue this week regarding the shooting death of Rayshard Brooks. Now, the officer who shot Brooks, Garrett Roth, has been fired, and Officer Devin Bronson has been placed on administrative duty. In a statement, Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard cites, quote, because this is a homicide investigation, there are several technical requirements that must be met before we're able to reach a decision that includes the confirmation of the ballistics involved and obtaining a preliminary report from the medical examiner, end quote. Howard says the decision could come by midweek. Well, joining me now to discuss all of this is defense attorney and our own WABE legal analyst, Paige Pate. Paige, as always, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Great to be with you, Rose. Paige, have you viewed the body camera footage? I think it's more than an hour. You've viewed all of it? I haven't viewed an hour of it. I've viewed about 30 minutes of it. What do you make of it, Paige? Well, clearly, I don't think the officers arrived on the scene with the intent to kill Mr. Brooks. I think things got out of hand very quickly. 
Um, it's clear that Mr. Brooks is for the most part compliant with them. Uh, their requests, while they seem a little odd at times, were mostly um, pursuant to policy um, in a situation like that where they suspect someone is intoxicated and may have been driving under the influence. Obviously, once they make the decision to arrest Mr. Brooks, then everything completely goes off the rails. Mm -hmm. um, at, at that point, are the officers allowed to use some force to restrain Mr. Brooks if the arrest is lawful? Yes, they are. No question about that. Not so sure the taser was necessary at that point, but pulling the taser, threatening to use the taser, clearly further escalated the matter such that Mr. Brooks felt compelled to grab the taser and then try to leave the scene. Hmm. Once he is running away, though, that's where I think things get a little clearer as far as what the police should have done versus what they actually did. Um, when the officer decides to switch the taser to his left hand and then draw his service weapon and then shoot Mr. Brooks. I think there were other alternatives, reasonable alternatives he could have taken because I don't think at that point, Mr. Brooks presented a threat of deadly force or serious bodily injury to the officer or anyone else present. You know, it, it's certainly a, a different case than George Floyd, mm -hmm. um, but I also believe that in this case that whether criminal charges are brought or not, the officer did not act appropriately in the situation. Depending on whom you ask and how you view the video, some will say, well, if Mr. Brooks, once he turned and seems to point the taser at the officer, is that a justified reason for the officer to return by using his weapon? Well, I mean, let's assume those are the facts, but looking at that video very carefully and, and slowing it down and, and looking at it almost frame by frame, it appears to me, now again, I'm, I'm not with the DA's office, I'm, I'm not with the um, Atlanta Police Department, mm -hmm. but it appears to me that the officer is reaching for his service weapon before Mr. Brooks ever attempts to point a taser at him. And then the taser is not so much pointed as it is fired in a very random, reckless way, which clearly, you know, this is not like a firearm. It's not like a nine millimeter or a revolver. Mm -hmm. Once you shoot the taser, the taser's gone. So it's not like he can continue to rapid fire the taser. The taser's been discharged. It's not a threat to the officer. But I don't think the officer was thinking about any of that. I think in the in the moment uh, with the adrenaline surge that the officer even said after the fact he was still experiencing, he simply made a snap decision that I'm going to shoot him. And then, of course, after the incident said, I got him, which to me indicates that the intent was to kill, regardless of whether there was an actual threat to the officer's safety. Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard has said, possible murder or felony murder charges for Atlanta police officer Garrett Roth could be in order. For our listeners who may not understand the difference between those two charges, Paige, give me the education here. Sure. Um, felony murder is basically when you kill somebody while you're committing another felony offense. And, and what Paul Howard is suggesting here is that the officer was committing aggravated assault when he shot Mr. Brooks, Mr. Brooks died, so he's guilty of felony murder, even if he didn't intend to kill Mr. Brooks. Murder's different. 
murder means he intended to kill Mr. Brooks and in fact did kill Mr. Brooks. Now the intent for murder, it doesn't have to be premeditated, you know, like when he showed up on the scene, I'm going to kill somebody today, or, or even at some point prior to almost the instant where he decided to aim his weapon and, and discharge it. So I don't think felony murder is appropriate. I don't think aggravated assault is appropriate because there's really no question he intended to shoot and kill Mr. Brooks. The only question is whether that shooting was justified. So I think it's either murder or it's nothing at all. Is it odd through your lens that District Attorney Paul Howard would be publicly making what the potential charges are already without even having any evidence back from the GBI? Yeah, I, that's a great question, Rose. And, and I, the answer to the, to the question is this would not have been um, Paul Howard's uh, actions or process had this occurred two years ago, five years ago. But there are a lot of things going on right now that I think compelled him to speak publicly and, and try to be as transparent as possible and perhaps maybe move too quickly. I mean, one, we know that he has a very serious uh election challenge uh, from one of his former deputies, one of his former assistants. Um, and he's in the middle of that right now. He has a runoff coming up. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of attention on him. And then two, all of the decisions that have been made in similar cases across the country and here in Georgia, the Ahmaud Arbery case for one, certainly puts the pressure on him to make some decisions quickly. We can only hope that the decision will also be careful and proper and not just fast. The voice you hear is defense attorney and WABE legal analyst Paige Pate as we continue our conversations regarding the reaction and the shooting death of Rayshard Brooks. Paige, the medical examiner has come back with a decision after an autopsy, gunshot wounds to the back. How significant is this for prosecutors? Well, it, back in the day, so to speak, it would be incredibly significant because we wouldn't have video of the actual shooting. Mm -hmm. Here, we have video of what happened. So, you know, I don't think the ballistics or the ME report really sheds a whole lot of light on what happened. I think it's clear that Mr. Brooks was shot in the back. I think we knew that before the report came out. One of the things that I think will be interesting will be once uh, the toxicology report comes back. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes that takes longer than the initial autopsy from the medical examiner. And that could be a defense for the officer if there's some substance that was uh, in Mr. Brooks' blood that may have affected his demeanor and behavior. But again, we have video. And that's what makes these mm -hmm. recent cases so different from the cases in the past. If this had happened 10 years ago, you and I wouldn't be talking about it. There would be no investigation. He would not, the officer would never be facing criminal charges. But things are different now, for mm -hmm. better or for worse. The GBI will present their findings to Paul Howard's office. Something that a listener emailed me and said, well, why is it that the GBI could press charges against the McMichaels in the Maude Arbery case? Could they press charges in this case? Well, they can. They can. Uh, and, and that's a great question. Um, it's not ideal because the way the, the process is supposed to work is the investigative agency investigates. They come up with their conclusion. They present it to a prosecutor who then decides, are we going to take it to a grand jury to indict someone or are we not? And so normally that process takes a lot of time. 
what was happening in Glenn County was that there was a serious concern that the prosecutors who had kind of, you know, passed the case back and forth, mm -hmm. were not going to give it a close look. And so the GBI said, we've got probable cause now. We're going to go to a judge, get an arrest warrant, arrest these people, and then let the prosecutor figure out how they want to charge the individuals if they need to. So, yes, the GBI could seek an arrest warrant now, but clearly Paul Howard is in charge of the criminal side of the case, and I'm sure he's asked them to wait and let him make that decision. What challenges do you see, Paige, in terms of getting an indictment when it's a police-involved killing in general? Well, yeah, um, I've represented police officers who were subject of criminal investigation. I've been on both sides of these cases, and they are incredibly difficult, obviously very sensitive. Generally, at least in the past, now things are a little bit different these days, but generally, uh, people from the community will always give the benefit of the doubt to the officer. I mean, that's just been the case in the past. They recognize it's a dangerous job. You've got to make split-second decisions. And I think it's clear, at least before Mr. Brooks was shot in this video, that these officers were more or less polite. They were professional. They didn't show up with an agenda, as far as we can tell. So I, I think the focus of the grand jury will be just on those split seconds where the decision was made to shoot Mr. Brooks. So, I, you know, it's going to be a tougher case, I think, to bring criminal charges than uh, the Floyd case uh, in Minnesota. But again, times have changed and we do have a video of what mm -hmm. happened. And I, I think defensive, you know, if I'm looking at it as a defense lawyer, certainly you're going to assert that there was a need for the shooting. He was in reasonable fear for his safety. I just don't think that's going to work. Now, whether a majority of a grand jury sees it that way, we'll only find out later. Paige, in terms of police reform, we're hearing a lot about qualified immunity, which, depending on whom you ask, you will get a different answer as to whether or not that needs to end. But could you dissect it for our listeners a little better so they understand what we're talking about here? Yes, and I'll try to do it as, as quickly as I can. Um, the Constitution does not allow police officers to use excessive force. I mean, that's baked into the Constitution. And there was a, a law passed many years ago by Congress that gave people the right to sue a police officer who used excessive force. But over the last few decades, the courts have really narrowed that ability to file a lawsuit. And they've given officers protection uh, that's been called qualified immunity. And in many ways, it's not qualified at all. It's almost unqualified immunity. What you have to show to successfully file a civil lawsuit against a police officer is that the police officer intended to violate clearly established law. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the very specific situation where that officer used excessive force had to have happened before in some other case, and a court found that that was excessive. So what it does is it makes it very, very difficult to hold police officers accountable when they use excessive force. And especially in the past, when criminal convictions were extremely rare of police officers, the only way to try to monitor their conduct was through civil litigation. But qualified immunity made that almost virtually impossible in most cases. So are you saying then it would be difficult to get the history of the officer's conduct or actions in the past? 
I'm saying it was always difficult to pursue an officer in court for what they did as far as excessive force, because they, whoever's suing the officer has to show that this, whatever the officer did in that case Mm -hmm. is similar to some case in the past, not involving that officer, but involving some other officer. In In other words, a court had to say, if you shoot somebody who comes at you in this way, that's wrong. But if he comes at you in a different way, we haven't said anything about that. So you're okay. It's kind of like the the one bite rule with a dog, right? You can't sue somebody who owns a dog if the first time they bite somebody, it's a surprise to everyone. So in every single factual situation, the officer would say, well, how was I supposed to know that shooting this intruder in this way was a violation of constitutional law? There's no other case on it. It it was a strange doctrine, but it was obviously presented and uh, developed to protect police officers. Mm -hmm. Paige, as we wrap up, do you think that could be possible charges for the other officer, Officer Devin Bronson? No, I I mean, I I don't I have no way of of seeing how criminal charges could be brought against that officer. Maybe his force in trying to make the initial arrest was was a bit outside of policy. But but no, clearly he did not participate as some party to the crime and aggravated assault or or some other legal theory. So I, I don't see, even if you're stretching things, how that officer could be charged. And finally, Paige, all the conversation, not just with this most recent uh, killing, but obviously what's been taking place the last few weeks, calls for police reform, calls for changes in community policing, calls for defunding the police. Everyone seems to have a solution here. You see some changes happening as it relates to the police reform or even prosecution or legislation. What do you see is most likely to come out of this in terms of changes? Well, Rose, there are a lot of good ideas floating around right now, things that people have been talking about for a long time. And, and now may be the time to pursue them. Eliminating qualified immunity is one thing. Uh, eliminating no-knock warrants that led to the death of, of uh, Ms. Taylor in Kentucky, as well as, as other individuals. There was a case here in Georgia where that had happened. What I think, though, is critical if we're going to enact some meaningful reforms and, and make change that matters is that people have got to talk about this reasonably. And, and what I'm seeing right now, and, and it's unfortunate, is a complete polarization of, of both sides. There are some good officers there are some bad officers, but there's a way of looking at police training, police policies, and then the law that governs their conduct after the fact that can be done in a reasonable, common sense way to protect people. And that's really what this is all supposed to be about. I think we've had the mindset for many decades that whatever the police need, we're going to give them. Whatever helps the police is what we need to do. They're here to serve the community. So we need to start putting people first and then the police. And that just requires looking at everything in a totally different frame of reference. And I hope we're at that point now. Defense attorney and WABE legal analyst, Paige Pate. As always, thank you for taking the time, Paige. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. I enjoyed it. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. De-escalation in law enforcement. By definition, you might think, well, it's simple. 
How do we reduce the intensity of a conflict or potential violent situation? As we continue today's discussions, joining me now are two veterans of federal law enforcement. Both now work in security services. They also can talk about policy and procedure reviews and training. First up, Ray Moore. He's the owner of Moore & Associates Security Consultants and also a former Secret Service agent. Douglas Shipley. He's a retired supervisory special agent with the FBI. He served as the acting assistant special agent in charge of the Atlanta Division and has training and development experience with local and federal law enforcement. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Let's begin here, uh, and I'll start with you, Agent Moore. Can you just reflect on, on what's taking place throughout our nation as it relates to not only calls for police reform, but in general, uh, law enforcement and these interactions that end up with a deadly outcome. What's your reflection on all of this? Well, as I view television, everything is happening in real time. As you saw with the George Floyd uh, case up in in, uh, Minneapolis, you had a a man who was killed on television. Mm in real time. So people are actually seeing it. It's not something that they heard about, something in passing. They were able to view it. If they watched that entire video, they were able to view it in real time. And they saw how it appeared that one man took a man's, another man's life very calmly. And so that erupted into emotions and, and physical um, confrontations with primarily young people and law enforcement wanting to make a change, wanting to make a change because they saw that. And some saw that time when, when Mr. Floyd was on the ground, they saw themselves in that position and they want change to be made. Agent Shipley, your thoughts as you reflect on what's taking place in our nation. In our nation, we see, seem to see this kind of thing happening cyclically. Um, Every five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, 100 years. So I look at it from a, a almost a historical perspective. Um, I, I think I've coined the phrase that America is basically a type one diabetic. Um, and for 400 years, it's had a wound that will not heal. And we've only occasionally changed the bandage on it. So this is not just the police. It's not just uh, what we're seeing on television. It's kind of systematic. And until we figure out how to, how to change the entire system, the police are just a symptom. Let me stay with you, Agent Shipley. You said until we figure out how to change the entire system, that are you talking about on every level, from local to federal? Yes, I'm talking on every level, from local to federal. And it's not just about policing in America. If it was just about policing in America, that would be one thing. But if you look at it from a systems approach, a systems approach is that if you fix one thing in the system, it may not be the root cause of your real problem. And so you still have the problem. If you abolished and and, uh, took away all the police in America, all the law enforcement in America, you would still have a problem with implicit, explicit bias. and all of those things that still go into it. So we're not just talking about police. Police are just a symptom. Police are just part of the issue. You mentioned bias. 
Everyone has a lived experience that's different from the next person. And when folks make the decision to go into law enforcement, whether it's at a local level, a police department, state patrol, FBI, Secret Service, when someone makes that decision that that is their career path, and you all have been there, but what self-reflections does one need to also take a look at before making that decision? Well, as you said, everyone has um, biases and they're very familiar and comfortable with their own community. A person who wants to broaden their horizon then sometimes engages with others in others' community, other communities to to learn about them. Um, I was born and raised in Atlanta and everybody thought I'd go to an Atlanta university, historically black college university, but I wanted to go to a school that was predominantly majority population, a majority white school. So I went to West Georgia College in Carrollton, Georgia, so I could get a more diverse experience with people with different mindsets than I had. And going into law enforcement, I either wanted to be a, a police officer or a politician. And in the Secret Service, you're sort of surrounded by both. So I got the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. I knew going in that as a law enforcement officer, you would have to arrest people, take away some of their liberties. But I was always of the mindset that I would do it the right way. I would follow the policies and protocols uh, of my agency and do it the right way. Hmm. Agent Shipley, what about you? Similar to Ray, I wanted to do something um, Growing up, I always wanted to be in law enforcement in some way, shape, or form. And I thought about it as uh, Doug's own personal thought process on he hates bullies and people who abuse other people and take away their rights and things are bullies. So my impetus to, to seek law enforcement was to help those who could not help themselves. Um, I was raised to believe that I wasn't better than anybody but certainly nobody was better than me. And so with that mindset, when you're talking about what types of people, what types of thoughts you should have when you're talking about going into law enforcement, you need to do some real Mm self-reflection. What are the reasons that you are planning on and what are the reasons that you're thinking about going into law enforcement? Law enforcement is not for everyone. Law enforcement requires um, you to walk that line as Ray talked about, to do what the policies and procedures are and to not abuse other people. That's the, that's the thing. And so you can't take a Barney Fife mentality because you get your bullet and you get to go out there and, and patrol the world. You can't just take over people. That's not our job. Our job is to help those who cannot help themselves. Let's talk about de-escalation. And I gave a very simplistic definition coming into this segment. But when we talk about what makes for effective de-escalation training, and I'll start with you, uh, Agent Shipley, because you you have trained folks at Quantico, I understand, correct? I've trained folks at Quantico. I trained, I was a police officer before I was an FBI agent. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I was actually a training officer as a police officer and then became an FBI agent and then uh, worked at Quantico. What what goes into effective de-escalation training? Before we even talk about how an officer should, should take that training and turn it into effective execution, 
But what goes into effective de-escalation training? And what are some of the problems? I'll let you go first. Well, I I think you go back to um, that self-reflection and it comes back to um, uh, an awareness of who you are, how you think, what you think, and how you come across to other people. Um, People are using emotional intelligence nowadays. They're talking about these emotional intelligence kinds of things. And it basically boils down to that. This is before um, we ever even used the term or knew the term emotional intelligence. But to be able to have a conversation with somebody and recognize what you are saying to them, what they are hearing, and what they are not hearing from you. So it's a, com- a communication thing. So and when you're talking about a de-escalation training, you have to start with the basics, and that is listening skills and communication skills. Um, in order to be able to de-escalate, you have to be aware of where you are in that conversation and how you're contributing to that conversation. If both of us come in with some kind of a preconceived bias, the police are only here to to hurt me, and black people or people of color or big thugs and and beast and 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 or superhuman, we've come in to the whole conversation with bad information, and it's going to go badly. Now that is part one of my conversation with Ray Moore and Doug Shipley. You'll hear part two tomorrow as we continue the conversation about de-escalation training, effective de-escalation training, and other changes through their lens that needs to happen in law enforcement. So part two coming up on tomorrow's Closer Look. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.